Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous opportunity, this privilege, this honor even of gathering together as family in the unity of the faith, Father. Thank you for giving us so much, for overwhelming us, for making each day precious, even in our own sight, Father, when, we're, when we are rightly oriented to you. Father, thank you for your grace, for your love, for your mercy at times when we prove ourselves unfaithful to you, even though you are always faithful to us. Father, we thank you for your son, for his shepherding us, for the giving of his spirit to guide us, to convict us in time. We pray for those, Father, that cannot be with us this morning, that desire to be here. And we pray also, Father, for those that are still lost, that for whatever reasons of ignorance or arrogance are refusing the good news of your Son. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your Son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and make a morning like this even a reality for us. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message and the goings-on, and we ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name, by the power of your Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, what is good? That is the big question, and it's a question that I think um, gives us pause, um, rightly so, and I think... Um, Given the curriculum as of late, it was a good time in uh, the, my absence and with the break in the primary course of studies to take advantage of that pause, to really rest on that big question <clears throat> in each of our lives. What is good and how do we define it in our own lives and is it right? I guess that's the big question is, is it a righteous good? that we purport to be true in our lives? And that's been that big question, I think, that um, really just opens up a can of worms in our own lives if we're honest with ourselves. Um, and that's really what it comes down to, isn't it? Humility is the key to the spiritual life. And if you lack humility, you'll never have those. You won't take pause. You'll fill all the places where the Spirit wants you to pause, with, who knows, garbage from the world system, a football game, a drink of scotch, a, a, a smoke, a, a, a ridiculous phone call, I don't know. We just have a really good ability as human beings to fill our time with things that, have no, that aren't good, that have no redeeming value in our lives whatsoever. And I think that's what he's saying. Just step back and see what you're celebrating, see who you're celebrating, and ask yourselves, is that good? So, um, first of all, thanks again to uh, Scott for standing behind this um, wonderfully placed pulpit in my absence. 
And I personally thoroughly enjoyed the teaching he was given by the Spirit for all of you. Such a magnificent time to remember the God-man, particularly following the Thanksgiving holiday. That's another thing. What are you thankful for? Is what you're supposedly thankful for. Is that good? Are you thankful for the truly good things? Or are you thankful for counterfeit good things? And it always makes me think of my favorite passage, or one of my favorite passages, if there is such a thing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In everything give thanks. There's just so much to be thankful for, and it's incredible that we ever lose sight of it. So I really enjoyed the additional perspective that we were given through the lessons titled The Introduction to the God-Man. I think we can become familiar with them. So just to reiterate the closing remarks from that series, go to John 1.12. John 1.12. It's a good place to transition. You guys hear me all right? I'm speaking really quiet. John 1.12 But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, I like that word, the right. You have rights. I mean, you're part of the family now. He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's a very important statement, as we've learned this past week. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As we've studied on the topic of being born again, it's plain to see that one must be born of God to be children of God. And the reminder has been over the course of the past couple of years, frankly, is this is a supernatural event, something that we don't will into place. We cannot will it into place. God must will to save you. We don't will our own salvation. We can want it, we can desire it, but as we're going to see, unless he draws you, it's not going to happen. You can play all the right games, have the painted face and the right outfit and the, the echelons on your shoulder and have a bunch of other people tell you you are the one, the most fantastic Christian to ever march beside the cross and blah, 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 blah. And he might say, I never knew you. I was thinking about this even before we go any further in this review. It's good to note that it is God's choice as to how he reveals himself to his own creatures. Think about that. It is God's choice. And this is what one of the things that I was thinking about when I was listening to the mini-series that Scott had taught. <clears throat> God's choice. Man doesn't decide how God is to reveal himself to his creatures such that man is somehow convict, uh, convinced of him. Man doesn't get to decide that. That is the pinnacle of creature arrogance. 
The truth is that God has chosen both general and special revelation, things he has deemed more than sufficient to reveal himself. This is God's choice. God created all of us. And he says, this is how I'm going to reveal myself to you. And that's it. And it's more than sufficient. But if, you haven't, if you've ever been in an argument with an unbeliever, most of them say, where's the proof? What do you mean? He's designed you to know him. And therefore, you are without excuse. Go to Luke 16, 19. One of my, I shouldn't say my favorite, on this particular topic, it's a very telling uh, passage. Luke 16, 19. On the point, or regarding the point on the board, Luke 16:19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So the, the rich man went to what we would call place of torment, so he's destined for the lake of fire. And the poor man is with Abraham, is saved. So it's an unbeliever and a believer in Hades, in different compartments. Verse 24, And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham. It's interesting, he calls him Father Abraham, but yet he's destined for the lake of fire. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now that is exceptionally telling, is it not? If they're not listening to the mouthpieces of the Lord God himself, what makes you think they're going to listen even to a resurrected person? Just put that into perspective in your own lives even. In other words, if they didn't listen to God's word through his chosen mouthpieces, then nothing will help them. The rich man is like many people today. 
thinking that his own suggestion as to how God should reveal himself would surpass God's own way. Well, if you just did this one thing, if you, if you resurrected someone and sent him to witness on your behalf, God, that's even better than what you've chosen or how you've chosen to reveal yourself. Just put that into perspective. Is that not obnoxious? Of course it is, and it's coming from an unbeliever. So again, the point on the board is that this is God's choice. Man doesn't decide how God is to reveal himself to his creatures such that man is somehow convinced of him. That is the pinnacle of creature arrogance. We just saw an instance of it with the rich man. God has chosen both general and special revelation, things he has deemed more than sufficient to reveal himself. More than sufficient. All right, go back to John 1, 12. John 1, verse 12. <clears throat> verse 12. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is from this past week on John 1.13, not of blood. One cannot become saved by being born into a Christian family. Unfortunately, a lot of so-called Christians think they are saved just because they were raised in a certain category called Christian. And I'm, I was psyched to hear... Um, Scott described some of his polling of so-called Christians out there. You can ask somebody what religion are you, and they, around here, the vast majority will say, I'm Christian. Well, what do you think of Christ? Well, I don't know. One of the guys you said didn't even know if he had a soul, but yet he called himself a Christian. How does that work? It doesn't, you see? You might as well just be wearing a, a, a t-shirt that says, I'm a Christian. Big deal. As we learned this past week, again, not of the will of the flesh either. No matter how much you try to will yourself into God's family, maybe by your own goodness or striving to please God, this will not make you born again. Only God himself can do that by his gracious choice, Romans 11, 5-6. As a corollary up here on the board, God only accepts his way to salvation. Only God can give this new birth to man by grace. A person does not have the will or the power or the willpower to save himself, period. That is the heart of every false religion. If you look at any religion that's not true religion, it's always some form of man's will or human power that is uh, satisfying or saving themselves. And then our final point on this tremendously telling passage of Holy Scripture was this, not of the will of man. No person can decide for another person even, not just for themselves, but for other people. I mean, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you really would like a loved one to be saved? I mean, come on. You feel like, you know, tucking them under your arm 
and like going, you know, through the pearly gates, so to speak. Like, come on with me and just running through and hoping nobody notices. But it doesn't work that way, right? You really just want to kind of hold them so tight that they're able to come with you, but it doesn't work that way. No person can decide for another person. No person can, quote, will another person to be saved. I mean, you might be like the rich man that says, oh, well, you know, I wish that, you know, maybe when I die, maybe I'll ask God to resurrect me and I'll go, ooh, you should believe because I'm in heaven now. You know what? They still wouldn't believe. That's the point. You personally could die, be resurrected in their presence, and that still would not make them believe. You know why? Because God has already revealed himself to them. That's why. So you can't will it either. Each man's heart is accountable to the Lord. One last read, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This simple fact is as Jesus, the Messiah himself, stated very clearly. And I'm convinced that this particular statement that I'm about to put on the board is incredibly offensive to false Christians. And I'm talking about false Christians that many say, I am a Christian. This is very offensive to them. This is what Jesus said. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's offensive to people, especially false Christians. Why? Because it completely relegates their flesh impotent. That's why. The flesh hates being told it has no part in salvation. The flesh hates being told it has no real power. So to false or professing Christians, John 6.44 is really offensive to them. And just to reiterate the overarching comment the Spirit's making here, this is God's choice. If God doesn't choose to draw you to Him through His Son, you're not coming. You're not coming. It's that simple. And from a believer's perspective, we have to think, even be influenced as to how we evangelize people and where we spend, where we cast our pearls. In other words, is it good for you to spend, I'm just scenario planning, is it good for you to spend the next two weeks with an unbeliever who really, even if a dead person was resurrected right in their vicinity, still wouldn't believe and spend 20 hours arguing about the veracity of the Bible and prophecy and all this other stuff? Or is it better for you to take your 20 hours and go sit with 20 individuals who might be open? Do you understand? What's a better effort? What's a better return on investment for your time? There's a lot of people who bang their head consistently against the wall with extremely arrogant people. 
And then the Bible says, don't cast your pearls before swine. They've heard the good news. They know the good news. They know God exists. God's not impotent. So nothing you're going to do, stand on your head, do another antic within that 20 hours or that 20-year time frame. I'm not saying you don't give somebody the gospel again and again. I'm saying choose wisely and understand the truth about how God saves people. Man doesn't decide how God is to reveal himself to his creatures. That is the pinnacle of creature arrogance. God has chosen both general and special revelation things. He has deemed more than sufficient to reveal himself. And that, I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of peace. Because it's really hard for me. And I'm going to stop bawling here in two seconds. I cannot think about hell. I just can't. It's horrible to me. It's awful. And the only way I sleep at night is knowing that it's not my job to save a person and that God is just and righteous and fair. That anybody that ends up there is the same as the rich man who called Abraham father even and still was unsaved and thought that some human device like resurrecting somebody in the presence of family members was going to change their mind about the word of God that came from Moses and the prophets. That's overwhelmingly sad to me. And it gives me peace, though, knowing that it's not me. It's not my choice. It's God's choice to save. Our job really is a waiter. Here is the gospel. Get, the, get it right. Don't change anything on the way from the kitchen to the dining room. Don't change. Don't mess with it. This is what it is. Pick up the full order and deliver it to people. That's our job. That's not hard, and I'm so happy about that. Because if someone goes, it's between them and the cook, right? Now, if I tried to salt it with a little gymnastics, you, you know what I'm saying? Or pepper it, or add a little spice of my own to try to spruce it up. If anything, I've destroyed it. It's no longer the meal that God intended for this person. That's not my job. Here's what the Bible says on general revelation even. Romans 1, 19-20b, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, so that they are without excuse. Just a little, a little analogy here. You can sit back for a moment. I was just thinking about another way to drive home the point the Spirit's been making on this. A single mom sets up a chores chalkboard near the refrigerator in the kitchen where she writes the kids chores each day before leaving work one Saturday the mom writes clean your rooms and pay the milkman when he comes we're almost out of milk and he won't deliver otherwise she comes home and she notices that the kids rooms are still dirty Frustrated, she finds her kids who are now playing Xbox in the basement, and she asks them, why are your room's not cleaned like I asked? The answer, just on the edge of flippancy, don't know, you never told us to. And the mom says, did you read the chores chalkboard? Nope. 
Why not? Because it's not some place that we think about reading when we get up. So it's not our fault. The mom begins stewing in her disbelief, especially since the kids still haven't stopped playing their video game, giving their mom only marginal attention. So she walks over and rips the, the power cord right out of the wall. <laughs> huh? That's what I would do. And says, go to your rooms and clean them immediately or suffer more severe discipline. The kids stomp off, acting ridiculous and mumbling and such. And the next morning, the mom has to run an errand and isn't back before the kids get out of bed. The kids get up, pour themselves a bowl of cereal, and begin complaining profusely about how there not being any milk in the fridge. They both look over at the chores chalkboard and see yesterday's list that reads, quote, pay the milkman when he comes. They remember that they were out playing soccer down the street with their friends when they saw the milkman truck go by. The kids are so self-absorbed that they still choose to complain to their mom when she walks through the front door. Mom, we couldn't eat breakfast because there's no milk. The mom responds, well, let that be a lesson to you. Next time, read the list of chores as I have revealed them to you. But we don't like it that way, they moan. And the mom says, too bad. When you have your own home with your own kids, you can decide how to convey chores to them. But this is my house, and you are my kids, so you will do as I ask. Period. End of story. You get the point, I hope. Back to the point on the board. Again, this must be a heavy point. It's like the fourth time we've seen it. This is God's choice. Man doesn't decide how God is to reveal himself to his creatures. This is the pinnacle of creature arrogance. God has chosen both general and special revelation things he has deemed more than sufficient to reveal himself. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, so that they are without excuse. It's not like God messed up or he wasn't thorough enough or his, you know, his instructions weren't clear enough. I mean, God the Holy Spirit is crystal clear when it comes to the gospel. And we are guaranteed by the word itself that everybody knows it, and everybody hears it, and everybody gets the convicting ministry of the Spirit in their life. Otherwise, the God that we worship would be a farce. And that's the point of the passage in Luke with the rich man Lazarus, is that an arrogant person, it doesn't matter what gymnastics mentally or physically, I suppose, that you're going to do in front of them, it doesn't matter. They're not going to change their mind. Only God is going to save them. Only God is able to convict them. The running principle in our mini-series that we just got off that lends itself very well to our primary course of study is that God reveals himself as the God-man even. 
Jesus Christ. And before that even, he revealed himself definitively through what we call general revelation. Go to John 1.14. John 1.14. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized, came about through Jesus Christ. Up here on the board, this means that Jesus Christ is consistent with the Godhead, one forever and always. The Word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. But he was never separate from the other members of the Godhead. <clears throat> so, even though we haven't gotten to special revelation yet in our primary course of study, we have been given what I'll call a, a teaser trailer, if you would, in our last few lessons the introduction to the God-man. That is what we would call special revelation. Up here on the board, John 12, 44 to 46, And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. I mean, it's the great phenomenon of all human history that God became man to save him. I mean, how much more proof do you want? How much more does mankind need? We completed our study on the introduction to the God-man with a few plain statements about how Jesus is related to God the Father up here on the board, worth reiterating. Hebrews 1.3, he is the exact representation of his nature. Philippians 2.6, he existed in the form of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4, who is the image of God. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. John 14.9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. We have met the God-man, Jesus Christ, and his word explains him in all his glory. And that's how God has chosen to reveal himself, at least in part. One of the myriad ways that he's done it, through general and special revelation. God didn't mess up. We're not going to add to his revelation. We can only explain it to people. We can only lead people to it. We can only present people with it. That is our job. We are waiters. That is about it. As soon as we become more than a waiter, or we esteem ourselves higher than, quote, waiter status, that's when we muck it up. Both the God-man and the Word are special revelations, something we'll be getting into our studies more formally uh, very shortly. With that said, that's the end of our review. We have to recollect ourselves from where we left off a couple of Tuesdays ago, with part six of what is good and who gets to define it. Remember, that's what we're after here. That's 
the bit, if you would, we're chomping on. We want to get to that point where we are thoroughly convinced through general and special revelation who is good, what is good, and who gets to define it. And most of you already know the answer, but that's not the point. We already know a lot of answers, but in typical fashion, it takes us a while to be convinced of it, to be given true faith, to have it put to the test. The first test is, okay, if God is good, and if you already know everything that's good, then why don't you live that way? What's your problem? Why don't you live a perfect life then? You know why? Because you don't have all faith. That's why. How do you get faith? Faith is from hearing the Word of God. That's how you get it. So whether or not you think already in your arrogance that you know everything that's good, you don't. Let me be the one to tell you, you don't. <laughs> I miss you guys. You guys are like, oh, here he is. He's back, right? I'm, that's my job. As not unglorious, what's the right word there? I don't know. I'm going to make it up. As unglorious as that is, that is part of my job. I'm convinced that it's a major portion of my job. It's to help you realize the things that are um, not good, even, in your life. To turn over new stones. To discover new things about yourself. And it's not always bad. It's a good thing to realize that you've been worshiping something that you thought was good but isn't good. It's a good thing to realize that something you thought was good in your life really isn't good at all for you. That's a good thing. Last time I checked. As we just noted, God never fails. In His intention to reveal Himself to His creatures, that is what the Bible says, then do you know what? God reveals Himself to His creatures, period. No man is ever not known of His existence. Romans 1.20 If we suppose for a moment, just suspend reality, if we suppose for a moment that God did not reveal Himself, sufficiently, let's say, but kept his demands upon his creatures, his grace would be rendered imperfect. Because God never asks you to do something that he doesn't empower you to do by grace in the first place. So if we were to just suppose, suspend reality for a moment, that somehow God didn't reveal himself, but kept his demands upon his creatures, his grace would be rendered imperfect. In other words, you say, we would all end up in hell, in other words, for starters. Because it'd be impossible. His mercy would be a farce. And as Paul might say, we are to be pitied the most among men. If any of that were true, God would not be good. That's the point. If any of that were true, God would not be good. But that is not what the Spirit has revealed to us to be true. In fact, we know from the self-authenticating nature of the Word of God that His Word is perfect, which is a very good thing. Knowing this is perfect, and not only just perfect, but how about perfectly placed in our lives? How about that we get to make this the centerpiece of our lives? In a practical way, even. Jesus Christ, in a very real way, is the center. 
of our lives. He should be. I mean, he's the centerpiece, right? But this is the practical piece to the Lord. This is what we're supposed to read every day. This is what we're supposed to ingest every day. This is what we're supposed to live by. Do you see? There's a practical reality to the spiritual life as well. And so we can trust it because it's perfect and perfection is a very good thing. So we can trust it in every way and trust is a very good thing as well. And that's why before I left, we studied this out, the inerrancy of the Word of God. God doesn't want you to think that any part of this is not right or good. He doesn't want you to believe that. He doesn't want you to believe the lies that you get from your so-called Christian friends who have updated to 2017 and have essentially ripped out sections of the, the book, the good book, and said, well, that's not for today. Or that doesn't count because... And it doesn't apply to me because, you know what, I don't like it. So it doesn't apply to me. So I'm just not going to abide in that part of the Bible. I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to rip that out you know, effectively. Might as well. Because I don't want to hear it. But that's not true. And that's why he spent so much time proving to us that the Bible is inerrant. The Word of God is inerrant. It's perfect. And we can believe it. And thank God for that. Inerrancy means integrity, inconsistency, and lies ruin trust. A person who speaks consistently and reliably holds up a certain integrity to their essence. God is our perfect example. Stated a little more poetically, but equally effectively, the beauty of perfection is that you can trust it. The beauty of perfection is that you can trust it. It is upon this very truth that we must step back and discern our own lives against the standards of God. The beauty of perfection is that you can trust it. And we have to use that as our standard. If we're not perfect, then we are not perfectly good. Is that fair to say? If we're not perfect, if God's the only perfect being, if we're not perfect, then we don't have what He has. Because He's perfect and perfectly good. We're not perfect, therefore we're not perfectly good. So everything in our lives becomes suspect. Do you follow? Requires at least some introspection, some self-examination, just like the Bible says. We have to take time, and as I started class off, and pause. Just stay still for a second, will you? Most of you are so crazed out. I'm serious. Especially this time of the year, it's insane. People are nuts. They're so rude, too. Like, it's awful. Even driving nowadays, it's just awful, is it not? People are just so rude. It's like, where are you going in such a hurry? Like, seriously, what, what, if you're that flizzed out, like, every day, something, something needs to change. The reason is we're not perfect and therefore we are not perfectly good something that's truly good for you is not going to flizz you out is that fair that's fair right so then you have to say then why am i flizzed out right now why am i so anxious about life itself i mean only you can answer that 
But good things don't flip you out. That's not to say that we never do anything good because the Bible tells us we can and do through the power of the Spirit. However, we are looking for the source of good and who ought to define it. So there's this recurring theme in our studies. <coughs> Excuse me. The good litmus test, it is very sobering to analyze our own definitions for good. And that's been the challenge for all of us. What do you think is good? Are you sure? What are you celebrating? Who are you celebrating, by the way? We might quickly realize that what we think and even act upon is good really isn't. A good litmus test is to observe what we esteem or celebrate in ourselves and others. That's a really good litmus test. What is it that you're celebrating? I'm serious. What are we, in yourself or others, what is it that you esteem so highly? I mean, it's, it's unbelievable the things that are celebrated by all of us. It's ungodly. To help with this effort, the Spirit's been using the following working framework with us to reveal to us the answers to our questions up here on the board. We're still here, remember. General versus special revelation. General revelation, God's witness of himself through creation. Psalm 19, 1-6. And then special revelation, God reveals himself directly. Holy scripture, Christ's incarnation, dreams, visions, acts, etc. And we see a reference to that in Psalm 19, 7-14. Based on our study so far, focused on general revelation specifically, we have already concluded... You remember going to Genesis, right? And he saw that it was good. God is good. God knows good. Just put that in perspective. If you're not good and you say, well, that's really good, how valuable is your opinion? Right? So for God, for God to say that is good, then he must also be good. Because a person who's not good can't, intrinsically and absolutely 100% say, well, that's good. Do you follow? Because you're not the source of it. I hope that makes sense. In any case, Genesis 1.31, that's part of self-authenticating, in other words. God saw all that he uh, had made, and behold, it was very good. And that was after creation. He said, this is really good. It seems obvious, but as we've all agreed... We all get duped into thinking that we are our own sources of goodness. Just like the two first humans. And just to review, that's the oldest trick in the book. When we set aside God as the source of goodness and as the one who's able to define what is good, not just intrinsically, but for our lives especially, in context here, we have a problem. As soon as we, we take this and we go, All bets are off. If this is what is meant, if this is our practical guide, if you would, to living, which it is, uh, and we throw it over our shoulder because we don't like what it says, we don't want to read the chores chalkboard near the fridge, um, you've basically fallen for the oldest trick in the book. 
The oldest trick in the book, literally, is the one that the first two humans fell for in the garden. Question God's perfect goodness, his veracity, his inability to lie, his loving kindness, and his truth. When you throw the Bible over your shoulder, that's exactly what you're doing. You're taking the very word of God and dismissing it. So if you come to church, say, on a Sunday morning like this, and your faithful pastor says to you, hey, take a look at this and this thing in your life and you are completely convicted by it and then you go you've just dismissed the very word of God because God the Holy Spirit just convicted you I'm just a mouthpiece right convicted you of a truth in your life and you've said literally to God's face no nope no thank you you're no different than those little kids you were laughing about and poking fun of who were playing their Xbox and being dismissive of the authority in their life. How's that any different? It's really not. It's much worse, actually. That's disgusting, but how much more disgusting is it for you to say no or dismiss the Word of God in your life? Just to summarize again, the oldest trick is to put God on trial. You see how we're so gross, aren't we? Satan means attorney, right? That's what he's really good at. Put God on trial. Turn the tables around, right? We were talking about that before class, Todd and my mom and I, how that's what lawyers are really good at. You know, there's the spirit of the law. You know, come on, let's face it. You pretty much know what the law in the United States stands for, right? It's supposed to protect its citizens for the most part. So when some sleazy lawyer comes along, and defends the murderer of your child and gets him off, how is that in the spirit of the law? Honest to goodness, how did that person get served? How did the spirit of the law get served? No, because that's what a greasy, sleazy, I don't know if they're greasy or not, but sleazy <laughs> attorneys are. That's what they are. They twist the truth. It's like a, uh, an arrogant Christian, so-called, maybe they are, maybe they're not, twists this truth. Says, well, it says over here, or it says over here, and they pick and choose verses, and they, you know what I'm saying. And they put God on trial by being like an attorney, by trying to twist the word of God, and then catch God in what, some kind of an imperfection? Is that what we're saying? When we play those games, are we trying to say that God messed up somehow? That there's some kind of a legal loophole in God's intrinsic goodness? That, you know, 99% of God is, is good. But there's this 0.01% as it pertains to me, just so happens, that I can get away with murder or adultery or stealing, or cheating, or lying, or you pick it, whatever your poison is. That's the oldest trick in the book. I suppose the first way to do that, like the, you know, quote, pay the milkman analogy, is to question the manner in which God has chosen to reveal himself. I was just thinking about this. What does the average atheist scientist say nowadays? They always say this. 
And they're just being jackasses, honestly. I used to work with a lot of these idiots. Give me proof that God exists and I'll believe in him. You know what? The presupposition being peddled with such a statement is that he hasn't revealed himself already. Do you understand? Give me proof and I'll believe. You're such a jackass. The presupposition is bad. You're assuming, you're presupposing, you want me to accept that he hasn't. But I'm telling you, he has. And he does every single day of your life. So says Romans 1. And you, my friend, are without excuse. So stop telling me, stop arguing with me, and I'm done with these 20-hour conversations because you're a jackass arguing with you why God is real. You see all these idiots like Neil deGrasse and all those morons arguing. No, I'm serious. Arguing with, with what I consider idiotic Christians. Well, let's argue in public for, I don't know, four hours straight over the veracity of God. I would just say to that person, don't waste your time. Satan's gaining ground. You're not doing anything but showing yourselves an idiot. You're not even smart enough to realize that the presupposition is wrong. God has already revealed himself. And those who are humble enough to see it, accept it. And it's not for you, Mr. Dumb, ooh, dumb Bum Christian. <laughs> Two weeks, I'm just saying. Right? I wasn't going to say what you said, DJ. That was just to make you guys laugh. Because you're getting lulled to sleep. I've never sworn in my life. It's a, it's a bad, do you understand? It's a, as entertaining as it is, and as, you know, like, everybody gets that Rocky music going, yeah, hit that Degrassi guy in the throat, yeah, and the Christians are on this side, and they're like, yeah, yeah. Step back for a second. What's actually being argued over? Are we literally on the wrong baseball diamond altogether? Yes, we are. This is what God's saying to us. What's good? Is that good? I suppose it's not. I really do. Because it's based on them putting you, the so-called well-intentioned Christian, back on his heels. Saying, you prove God to me. And your response should be, I shouldn't have to prove anything to you. God has proven to you already that he exists. So says the word of God. I'm not going to argue with you about it. If you believe that, then great. Then we might have something to talk about. I'll tell you about Jesus Christ next. But if you just want to sit here ad nauseum and argue with me about the existence of God, i got nothing to say to you because that means if God can't do it, it doesn't matter if I resurrected from the ground right now. You still wouldn't be proved. You still wouldn't believe what I have to tell you right now about this good book even. Do you understand what I'm getting at? So these scientists that say, give me proof of God, and then I'll believe in him, have already decided that God, there is no proof, right? So what do you think you're going to do? If God can't prove himself, what are you going to do? Hmm. The presupposition being peddled with such a statement is that he hasn't revealed himself already, but as he tells us himself, he has, he has revealed himself. And those of his own creatures who say otherwise are, quote, without excuse. This is why I believe that arguing over such things with unbelievers is a moot point. As the Bible reveals to us through the example of the rich man speaking to Abraham from Hades, 
Even a resurrected person wouldn't be enough for these types of people. Now, I'm not suggesting that you don't go out evangelize. Don't, be, don't take this where it's not going. Just to put that into perspective again, a resurrected relative could walk up to an unbelieving person and say, you need to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation because the one true God has wrath toward you as you remain dead in your sins. That could, if that happened, even then, an unbeliever will not believe based on that encounter. Does that make sense? Even if a resurrected relative popped out of the ground, which would probably freak him out more than anything, that alone would not be enough for them to believe. Only the very witness and conviction of God through the special ministry of God the Holy Spirit is able to save someone. This is not about even miracles, my friends. No miracle has ever saved anybody. It's a miracle that you are saved, but no physical miracle, including resurrection, ever saved anyone. <clears throat> so no physical miracle or phenomenon has ever saved a person. That is why when a scientist who baits you into a moot discussion about the proof that God exists is setting you up for a fruitless conversation in many ways. You have to first accept the presupposition, which is faulty, that God hasn't revealed himself. They are not interested in listening to what you have to say because they've already decided for themselves that God doesn't exist. So again, to bring us back to where <coughs> we were before I left on vacation, the oldest trick in the book is to put God on trial. It's the oldest trick. So let's press on now. And remember the method in which the Spirit is walking us through our working framework. He's using specific passages, or the specific passage in Psalm 19 to facilitate this. Remember, we've already studied out uh, the general revelation, God's witness of himself through creation. We'll read that one last time. And now we're moving on to special revelation, of which we saw a bit of with our last mini-series, the introduction of the God-man. God reveals himself directly, Holy Scripture, Christ's incarnation, dreams, visions, acts, etc. Go to Psalm 19.1. We'll get the one last read of the summary of general revelation, Psalm, uh, excuse me, 19.1. Psalm 19.1. We'll read that and then we'll press on. I hope you're pacing yourself with your coffees and your drinks. I see a lot of tall cups out there. I'm just saying. You guys are, you guys are brave. Psalm 19.1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. 
Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. And so we use that as our launching pad for the topic of general revelation. And this is something that we were able to conclude up here on the board. The simple fact is that every person who's ever lived has known that God exists at some point in their lives. Every single person has known that God exists. And you know what's sad? If they didn't before death, they certainly did after death. That's really sad for a lot of people. As we've seen in Holy Scripture, on the topic of general revelation, I'm just tying up some loose ends here. God witnesses to himself through creation, Romans 1.20. God creates man with a conscience, ability to know right and wrong, Romans 2.14-16. God, quote, sets eternity in man's heart, Ecclesiastes 3.11. That is the nature, if you would, of general revelation. So these things, when they come together, which they will, because God is perfect and good and righteous in revealing himself, when these three things alone come together, you know that God exists. Every single human being. However, the final warning with respect to general revelation was this. General revelation is not the gospel. It's, not, it's one thing to be convicted that God exists. It's another thing to be convicted of the good news of salvation. People are not saved by general revelation. Nature doesn't save people, in other words. There's much more to it than that. Romans 10, 5 to 17, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 2, 5. Up here on the board, the Bible clearly speaks to the fact that a person must believe in Christ to be saved. Even in the Old Testament, they had to believe in Christ. They didn't know Jesus' name, but that's not the point. They knew that God saves. And as Job would say, I know that my Redeemer lives. So we mustn't overstep the boundaries of general revelation. That's the point. That's the caution, if you would. While it has a, def a definite purpose, it isn't salvation specifically. And that is one of the reasons why you also have to say to people that say, oh, I believe in God. Okay. What does that mean? You don't leave it there. You don't leave it there because that's not salvation. Do you understand? Someone could say, I believe, you know, I believe there's a God. I believe in God. I mean, look around. There's got to be a God, right? I have relatives like that. But that's not salvation. That's not salvation. That's the whole point. And I think that's what the Spirit wants you to know. Don't settle. I mean, we're, what has he been raising up? Come on, in the last two years. You know what he's been raising up? A bunch of evangelists. That's all of you. That's what he's raising up. A, bit, a bunch of people geared and trained, as the Bible says in Ephesians 4, to go out and evangelize. That's what he's doing. So when he says, don't rest on this, the statement that someone says, I believe in God, and then say, oh, well, they must be a believer, I won't give them the gospel. Don't rest on that. That's what he's saying. Give them the full meal, right? Go to the kitchen, come out and say, well, here's the full meal. And they may spit it out or slap it off your hand, whatever. What are you, too prideful? Too proud to give the gospel? Read Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Oh. So the point is, 
We mustn't overstep the boundaries of general revelation. While it has a definitive purpose, it's not salvation specifically. Up here on the board, we might summarize the purpose of general salvation this way, or general revelation, excuse me. It reveals the nature of mankind's creator, his holiness, righteousness, sovereignty, majesty, and glory. Arrogant man's failure to recognize this serves as an indictment against him. However, to the humble, it is on the pathway to salvation, but never the source. So if that's general revelation, then what's special revelation by definition? We've already seen this. Special revelation, God reveals himself directly. Holy Scripture, Christ's incarnation, dreams, visions, acts. Okay, you're still in Psalm 19? All we have to do is keep on reading. This is the second half of the passage that we've been reading. Let's read verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The law of the Lord, this is it, you ready? Look it, I just said that a thousand times earlier, didn't I? I'm holding up my Bible, this is perfect, okay? The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are, now, you have to understand that you don't get those things from general revelation. That's the point. There has to be a special revelation to say, well, what is the law of the Lord? What are the commandments of the Lord? What is the judgment of the Lord? Well, we, those things have to be re revealed to you by God. And that's why we have special revelation. Verse 10, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Equip me, of, equip me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation. There you go. You know what it means to meditate? Another word? Pause. Take pause. Sound familiar? Sound like I just said that? Yeah. Because you know why? Because that's what the Word says. Take pause. It doesn't mean take pause and pick up an Xbox controller. You understand what I'm saying? Take pause means set some time aside for God. First and foremost, pray. Take pause and pray. I've never, I don't see anything in the Bible that ever said you can pray too much. Imagine that. But I see in the Bible it says pray without ceasing. So you tell me what the Bible has to say. Maybe you're uncomfortable right now. Maybe you're twitching in your seat. Maybe this is one of those times that I just told you about where the pastor says this and you go, no thank you. No, 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 no. I'll do as I want. No, no, no. Maybe that's the time. I don't know. I just saw some of you squirm, that's why. Trust me, I've got your body language down to a science. I know when things make you uncomfortable. And it's, it seems to be apparent. I never go out and say this, but it seems, now most of you are going to be sitting like this now. <laughs> right? It's, it's, I could, I'd, be, I'd be willing to bet that I could guess when you've got a certain sin in your life. Because when it comes from the pulpit, some of you start going... Everybody's like, oh, darn it. This whole front row is going to move back. 
everybody's going to be back there in the couch area. It's not about me. I don't care. I'm just saying that to loosen you up a little bit, right? It's interesting that even upon being convicted like that, where it literally has a physical manifestation that other people can see, people that are staring at you, even with that smack dab in front of you, you still won't change. You have the spirit of the person who sees a resurrected person and still won't believe anything. Do you understand? Because they didn't believe the prophets. Because they don't believe the Bible itself. That's the spirit that you're exhibiting at that point in time. When you blow me off, when you blow this pulpit off, when you dismiss what the spirit's saying through this pulpit, that is exactly the spirit that you are following. It is the spirit of the Antichrist. Say it in your own soul, my friends. It is the very spirit of the Antichrist who loves to put God on trial. Who says, God doesn't know what's good for you. Eat of the fruit. He just doesn't want you to know. But now you will. Do it differently. That bald guy, he's an idiot. You know what he's doing. Look at him. Look at him. Look at me! You're laughing, but there's a real truth to that. Do you understand? And some of you need to sit back and say, you know what? It's true. I am that person. I do have the spirit of Antichrist in me. Hey, if Peter had it, get behind me, Satan. So can you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. And i got to pick a spot to close. What we see here is the psalmist's words speaking of the Word of God specifically. Okay? In the Old Testament, the language was somewhat different, but that's perfectly fine. Some might try to argue that since there are differences in language, there are different Gospels even. That's heinous. Blasphemy. But those are arguments from false teachers trying to establish themselves above the authority of the Word itself with the intention of drawing people away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The simple fact is that in this particular passage, the following is true. Up here on the board. In the Old Testament, the law, testimony, precepts, commandment, and the judgments of the Lord, Psalm 19, are all speaking about what the New Testament writers, for example, John, describe as the Word. The law is the Word. His precepts is the Word, because that's his thinking. As we've been learning as of late, the concept of the Word transcends just the written Word, the Bible, into a realm that cannot be fully comprehended by mere man. In other words, this isn't just the only revelation of the Word. Do you understand? God the Holy Spirit speaks to you individually, does He not? In your own, let's call it your own language. He takes this and makes it understandable because He's our true teacher, so says the Word of God. He's our helper. So the word transcends just, you know, ink on paper, so to speak. So maybe it's best to conceptualize the word and place it on the same plane as God himself. And I shouldn't say maybe it is. Not even just who he is or what he thinks, but the very essence of him. If God is then His Word is the expression of Himself. And see, since He is an expressive person, if you haven't figured that out yet, God is an expressive person. 
Since he is an expressive person, what we see and hear is what we get. So perfectly so that it is appropriate to simply say what the Bible says, that he is the Word of God. And it's interesting in closing, only God is able to express himself perfectly. So it is only right to say that he is the Word. We cannot say with any real honesty or integrity that we are men or women of our word. Have you ever broken a promise? Then you're not of your word. You break the law once, you're guilty of the whole law, correct? Have you ever lied? Then you're done. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Most of you that happened like, you know, you were like way smaller. Me, it just happened like a couple weeks ago. We're not, we're not men and women of our word because we're awful. Because we are all sinners who fail. We lie, we cheat, we steal, you name it. And that is the stark distinction between God and his creatures. While God is a man of his word, mankind is not. We are faithless while he is faithful. We are never exactly who we say we are. But God is. We lie about ourselves. To ourselves and others. So you get the point. Hence our previous principle from our studies, and I promise I'm closing here. God's word on his word. God says that his word means everything to him. And as such, it ought to mean everything to us. Amen? All right, I have a special guest coming up this morning to do communion service for us. Michael Pavia is going to do it, lead us in. So I'm going to hook him up. Guy, uh, gentlemen, get the uh, elements out, please.
want to uh, thank Pastor, obviously, for the opportunity to stand behind his pulpit. Uh, certainly is a great privilege, you know, just like life is. I know we take a lot of things for granted, specifically life. I'll speak for myself, and I'm sure I'm speaking for you. And uh, I, do, uh, I do thank you very much for the opportunity to be here and talk about the only thing that matters, which is God. So I'm not really a big uh, superhero, Marvel comic type of movie guy, but uh, I did just see a movie, and I know it's pretty much all, all you see on TV, all the superhero movies and everything, because they make a lot of money. And uh, I saw one, and the movie was all right, but one of the things I was thinking about when I saw it was the, the evil person. And they have all this power, and they started off doing things good, and then it always gets corrupted, right? And then they start wiping people out and do everything for themselves. And I was thinking, I know that's fake, but then I was thinking about real life, and then I really was thinking just how it mirrors just real life and how it mirrors really us and how disgusting we all are as a Bible. It's pretty clear about that. And it just goes all throughout history. You look at Greek mythology, which I personally think is not mythology. I think it's history. If you read Genesis 6-6, that's a different story. But you look at what everyone, if you do read Greek mythology, whether you think it's real or true, every single person did the same thing. Every, every angel or god or whatever it was did the exact same thing. They eventually got sick of people and started raining down hail and fire and plagues and just started destroying everyone that was worshiping them. And then you look at people throughout all of history, you know, going way back to Attila the Hun, Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, everyone with any type of power always does the exact same thing and serves himself. Right? That's all anyone does all the time, constantly. And then you look at where the real beginning was. So if you turn to Isaiah 14, 12, we'll see this has happened from before time began. And it still continues in everyone's lives today with every single person and every single creature. For those of you who aren't familiar with Isaiah 14, 12, it's describing the original sin of Satan, the greatest creature ever created by the hand of God. And you see the first corruption. Isaiah 14, 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly and the recess of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. He wasn't happy with everything that God gave him. And if we read Ezekiel 28 in your spare time, you see that God created him perfect, more intelligent, more beautiful, flawless. And what did he do with his power? The same thing that every single creature ever does with their power all the time. And you can say, well, well, I, I don't use my power. I don't have superhuman powers, first of all. Well, you do because you have life. You know, just like it's a privilege to stand here and talk to you about God, it's a privilege to breathe. Right? How many times have you thanked God yesterday for the fact that you can breathe without pain, that you can see, that you can take a step that you ate yesterday? Right? How many times, everyone in this room has uttered the phrase, I'm starving. No one in this room has ever been starving. But we're so implacable. What do we do with our power? Right? When people think about you, do they think, man, there's a person who exemplifies God, or at least tries, or there's a person I want to be around? Or do they think of you, it's like, oh, that person. Right? What are you doing with your power? Right? As Pastor said, everyone's lied. Everyone said something awful. Everyone's thought something horrible. Probably today. Right? Maybe during the lesson. Maybe about Pastor because he said something that hits you. Right? I've done it. Right? What do you do with your power? We all do the exact same thing. Every creature ever created serves themselves. Right? 
It's happened constantly. I know people at work, it's ridiculous. They got promoted to a team lead. They were the bottom level, now they're in charge of two people, and they're ridiculous now, right? You're in charge of two people, it's one project. It's a fourth grade project, right? But every time you have power, people change, and that's what we do, because we're disgusting. And unless you have the love of God and the power of God, that's all you do, right? But then you think about God. What did God do with all his power? He's the only one ever who takes his power, real serious power, and uses it for everyone else. Right? If you really believe the Bible, the Bible says, love the Lord God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and consider others more important than yourselves. Who in this room gives out more than 50% of their money to other people? I don't. But that's what we're supposed to do. Do we do it? Nope. But we'll complain about everything, right? I didn't like my meal yesterday. I had to wait, whatever, for my car to get fixed. Right? We're a joke. Right? What does God do with his power? Let's turn to John 3.16. Right? If you believe the Bible and that God is who he says he is and he really created the heavens and the earth because he spoke and the universe couldn't wait to respond because he's that powerful. We get so impressed with Superman and all these ridiculous comics and say, wow, wouldn't that be cool if I had that power or x-ray vision or, you know, a lightsaber or whatever the ridiculous thing you say is. What if I had that? God's got all that and more. And what does he do with it? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He could have done anything. How familiar do we get with that phrase? He died for us. No big deal. He died for us. Who would you die for? Let me ask you a question. Who would you ask to die for you? Think of the person you love more than anyone in the world. You'd probably say, yeah, I'd die for that person. Your wife, your husband, your son, your daughter, your mother, your father, whoever it is, that's fine. Would you ask them to die for you? Better yet, would you stand by and watch them be killed and tortured for people that hate you? You wouldn't. I wouldn't. He did. The one who has all the power is the only one worthy and capable to handle that power. I have a hard time when I think about God, it hurts my head. I have a hard time imagining no beginning. It just hurts. I can't. I have to stop thinking about it, right? But he's the only one who's capable to handle all that power. Because if anyone else is in charge, including you and me, every one of us would do the exact same thing Satan did. Every one of us would do the exact same thing Hitler did and Stalin and Lenin, and the list just goes on and on and on. Think about how you've acted when you've had a little bit of power. The same thing Satan did when he had all the power and a perfect God and it wasn't good enough for him. But God takes all of his crazy real power and dies for us so that we can be with him forever. Right? His power will be revealed. It is right now. But it's going to, you know, like the super movie you know, heroes and, the, and all that crap you see in Hollywood, that is going to be real. Right? And as the Bible clearly states, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And it's a great reminder for us that the God we serve is so powerful and we take it for granted. Yeah, he's powerful. He died for me. That's nice. No, he's really powerful and he really died for you. Right? That's who God is. His love is crazy. And all he wants us to do is just get to know him. And then his love will come through our lives all over the place. And that's why we celebrate the real power of God. So, as we celebrate, if you want to grab... The bread, the only ritual 
the, the only one true, real, powerful God gave us to call into memory is the suffering and dying that he did for us so that we can show our love and our life and take our power, our life, our breath, and be an example to people and stop complaining about everything in our lives and be a light to people. Instead of talking about your problems all the time, talk about someone else's problems. Help someone else out instead of focusing on you all the time. Do what God did. Never once think of yourself. Right? It's a struggle every day. You're going to fail every day. But with God's power, you keep moving forward. And we thank the Lord God so much for what he did. So in honor of our Lord Jesus Christ, in honor of the only one true real God with all the power, who never once used it for himself, let's eat the bread and be grateful. And in the same way the night before he died, he also said to drink the cup in honor and memory of the only true living God. In his honor. Let's pray. Abba, we love you so much. We're so unbelievably grateful. We're so appreciative of what you've done. We take it for granted all the time. We don't understand it. We can't even begin to understand it. We get little glimpses, Father, and it's overwhelming. We love you so much because you first loved us. It's amazing how much you love us, my Father. It's amazing how disgusting each and every single one of us are. And you love us, and you think we're the treasure and you think we're all worth it. How can we not love you back, my Father? How can we not try so hard to reveal your magnificent glory to this lost and dying world, my Father, to make it about you, not about us, to make it about you. It's always been about you. It always has been about you. It always will be about you, my Father. I'm sorry when we try to take your glory and make it about us, my Father. Please help us with everything. You know how fragile each and every single one of us are. You know us perfectly. We don't have to explain things to you. You just get it. You're God. You're all-powerful, and you love us. Thank you so much for you, for your spirit, for life, for this church, for our pastor, for every one of our brothers and sisters, and most importantly, my Father, thank you for what you did on the cross for all of eternity. We are so grateful. We'll never truly understand it, but thank you for revealing it to us a little bit more and more each day. Cause us to focus on you, my Father, and we thank you so much. We can't wait to see you. We pray all this by your power in the name of our precious Lord God and Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the conquering God, the all-powerful one, Eternal Father, amen.